communicating through scent or movement or all of these sorts of things is not the same as the speech that humans possess by which God communicates to us and us to God. Human beings speak from the time that they are very young. Thirdly, communication is a tool to be used for either good or evil. Um, good uses of communication, of speech, and so forth include examples like praising God, reminding others of truth, proclaiming the gospel, encouraging fellow believers. Evil uses of communication include such as examples as blasphemy, speaking lies, discussing inappropriate topics, or discouraging those around us. Communication, then, is to be guided by biblical principles. Turn to Ephesians chapters 4 and 5, if you would, and we'll look at a couple of these. I think it's probably helpful for us to consider that communication involves more than just our words. I mean, we all know this, but uh, if somebody looks at another person and says, I love you, that has one attitude or tone behind if they're like I love you I mean that's a different thing that's being communicated the way that we stand the way that we react to people also communicate sometimes it doesn't line up with what we're saying intentionally or unintentionally but um, uh, maybe this happens if you're you're talking to a child and you're trying to talk to them and they're looking over here or that sort of thing whether they intend it or not, they're communicating, I don't really want to talk to you. I'd rather go do this other thing over here, maybe with my friends. So communication is more than just the things that we say, but the things that we say are central and important to how we communicate. So the first principle is honesty. Look at Ephesians 4. Someone read verse 25, if you would, please. Ephesians 4, 25. All right, so we're supposed to get rid of something and do something. What are we supposed to get rid of? Okay, what is included in falsehood? Okay, lying. Yeah. Yeah. We need to be careful about things like exaggeration. Um, you know, we joke about like fish stories. It was this big, and then by the fifth time you tell it, it was this big. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but we need to be careful about that because it's easy for us to communicate things in a way that makes us sound good and other people sound bad, and that's a form of being dishonest potentially. Um, keeping promises. Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And it's hard for us to live up to that standard of honesty. Uh, so we're supposed to put off lying or we're supposed to put on speaking truth. What truth are we supposed to speak? What's that? Okay, God's truth, yeah. Okay. So is there your truth and my truth and everybody else's truth? No. So when we say silly things like speak your truth to somebody else, because that's kind of one of those pop psychology catchphrases, what are they saying? 
Yeah, sometimes it's pretty much like just tell people what's on your mind. And so we see it as a virtue. I speak my mind. There's things sometimes we shouldn't say. So that's why in another place it says speak truth in love. And so we need to um, speak truth, speak God's truth, speak truth, be known as people who speak honestly and truthfully, and speak it with the right attitude and the right motivation. This applies to how we talk to one another. This applies to how we talk to um, unbelievers. Um, it is tempting for us to say to someone who's not a Christian, if you believe in Jesus, everything will go right in your life. Because we want to see him, you know, come to church with us or like us or something like that. We want to sort of tone down the unattractive parts of Christianity. Jesus, ironically, like in John 12 and other places, said hard statements when the crowds got too big to send some of them away. Unless you eat of my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And that made people say, we don't know what's going on with this. We don't want to be around this. I'm not saying we need to deliberately drive people away, but truth will, in some cases, do that. And we can't hide things that are true simply to make Christianity more acceptable to people. So the first one is honesty. The second one is edification. Verses 29 through 32. Someone read that, Ephesians 4, 29 to 32. Okay, and then related to that is 5, 18, and 19 talks about how we ought to speak to one another. You want to read that as well, please? 5, 18, and 19. Verse 22. We're supposed to edify. What does the word edify mean? Build up. And so, um, when we look at a verse like this, sometimes, how do I put it? Depending on how you were as a kid, you might have wanted your parents to list off everything you were supposed to do and everything you were not supposed to do, right? This gives a general picture of what is good, things that build up. It gives a picture of things that are bad, things that tear down, specifically things that are motivated um, by, verse 31, malice, a desire to see other people be hurt. And so if we were going to say, are my words pleasing to God or not pleasing to God related to this principle, it's a question of, do my words encourage the person with truth, building on the first one, or is it as, do I say what I'm saying with a desire to hurt someone with what I'm saying? 
This can take many different forms. I say something bad about a person to someone else to tear them down when they're not present. I say something bad directly to a person to make them feel bad because they've made me upset or they haven't lived up to what I wanted them to do. We need to edify to build people up with our words. We need to be careful, like James 3 talks about, of the dangers of the tongue because it reveals our hearts and it can destroy relationships and many other things in our lives. In contrast, in the context of believers, we ought to be speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks. And that applies in the context of the church service. That also applies outside of the context of the church service. I'm not sure it necessarily means that we have to walk up to someone when we encounter them at the grocery store who's a fellow church member and start singing to them. I'm not saying it would be wrong. I'm just saying I'm not sure that that's the only point this passage is making. What it is saying is we need to be having God's Word spilling out from our lives in such a way that that characterizes how we speak to other people. So along these lines, and this is a struggle for me because sometimes you want to come up to someone, you want to say, how was your week? What was going on? Do we move past... Not that the mundane things of life are unimportant or wrong, but do we move past those things and say, here are important things, let's talk about them. And ideally, we would get to a point where that's not forced or unnatural or strange to say, hey, is there a verse you read this week that really encouraged you? Is there something that I can pray with you about? Something good, something bad, something you're confused about, something whatever it might be, those are the kinds of words that build people up and help us grow toward maturity as opposed to words that are harmful and evil in their goal. We saw in uh, the end of chapter 5 this idea of thankfulness, but we also see it at the uh, beginning of, verse, of chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. Can someone read that? Ephesians 5, 3 and 4. So we look at these verses, and again, it's here's how you're not supposed to talk. So if the first one was, don't lie, speak truth, and the second was, don't speak to harm people, speak to build up, this one is, don't speak impurity, but rather speak with thankfulness. Immorality, impurity, or greed, and, and, and when it says, not even named among you, it's not saying we can never talk about them as being bad things. It's saying they should be such so much not a part of our lives that they're just our speech is not characterized by those things. When someone describes your life and the way that you talk, would they use a word like thankful to describe the way that you talk? Sometimes we're satisfied if they just don't use a word like swears a lot. But it's not enough just to say, I don't swear. 
do I give thanks? When do we give thanks? Well, verse 20 said, always giving thanks for all things. And so we need to give thanks regularly in response to answered prayer, in praise to God for different blessings that He has given us in the day, even in the context of trials, giving thanks to God for the opportunity to hopefully be a testimony of Christ. It is tempting for us in many circumstances, instead of being thankful, to complain. And you say, well, I don't see complaining in the list, so it's probably okay. Complaining is tied to, in many cases, something like greed. I want this. I don't have it. So I'm going to say bad things about God and others because I don't have it. So there's a sense in which it is in the list. Immorality, you say, what is the connection between immorality and giving of thanks? If you are not thankful for what God has provided for you, you will sin in various ways. Immorality, impurity, greed, filthiness, silly talk, coarse jesting, because you will not be in the habit of speaking to God about the things of life, and so you'll say, I can say whatever I want because I've forgotten what it says like in Ecclesiastes 5. God is listening, God sees, God hears, God will bring you to judgment for careless words. Speak truth, speak to build up, Speak in thankfulness primarily to God, but probably by application to other people as well. And then speak wisely. Uh, turn back to Ephesians 4. I'm sorry. Ephesians 5, I have the wrong chapter there. Ephesians 4, 11 to 12 are also good verses, but they're not the ones primarily about communication. Ephesians 5, 11 and 12. Someone want to read that? And then the whole rest of this section before we get to 18 and 19 is basically contrasting um, foolishness and wisdom. And so we ought to speak in a way that is characterized by wisdom and characterized by purity. And if we want clarification on what wisdom looks like, James 3 gives us some of that. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior, his deeds, and the gentleness of wisdom. But you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart. Do not be arrogant and lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is pure, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Our words should be characterized by truth, by encouragement, by thankfulness, and by wisdom. This is not an exhaustive list. The Bible has a lot to say about communication, and so there's a bunch of other places that we could turn. But these are some important key principles that will affect the way that we talk to one another and, I think, help us to please God more in it.
Moving on to the second point, God has given his creatures the ability to respond emotionally to circumstances based on their desires, thoughts, and intentions. And again, it may not seem like there's a direct connection between our words and our feelings, our emotions, but they often coincide. Sometimes we'll talk about angry words or jealous words or those sorts of things. Those are places where these two ideas are uh, intersecting. Emotions are an imperfect reflection of God's perfect responses to various situations. I think it's important for us to remember that God is not reactive, but He does respond. This is important because sometimes we start with the way that we um, encounter situations, and then we try to read that back onto God. We'll, we'll read a passage like, Don't grieve the Holy Spirit, and we think about a time that someone made us upset. And there is a parallel, but God doesn't experience it precisely the same way that we do. Sometimes we're upset because we don't know something is happening. Sometimes we're upset because we can't do anything about it. Neither of those things is true about God. And so the way that God experiences what we parallel as our emotions, our feelings, and so forth is not precisely the same thing, but it does it does reflect in some way us being in God's image. How are God's uh, responses described? God is angry with sin. See this in Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed against unrighteousness of men. Matthew 21, similar. People can express righteous or unrighteous anger. Ephesians 4.26, be angry and do not sin which implies there is a possibility of anger that is characterized by sin. God's sorrows. We see about Genesis 6. Uh, God was sorry that he had made man on the earth. John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. But God's sorrow is never for things outside of his control, never for things about which he can do nothing, never uh, for the wrong reasons. People can have godly or ungodly sorrow, like 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 10. Um, Paul said that there is a sorrow that leads to repentance, and then there's an ungodly sorrow. And his prayer for them was that they would be having a godly sorrow. Thirdly, God rejoices in the obedience of his people. Uh, various passages there in the Psalms. People can rejoice, but they can rejoice in what is right or what is wrong. Emotions are complex. Since they're unpredictable, we tend to distrust or be frustrated by them. Um, and sometimes this is because we don't understand why we feel a certain way in a certain circumstance, right? Something happens and we have an emotional response and we say, why did I feel this way about this thing? And the reason that we felt that way about that thing has to do with what we think, what we want, and what we do, and those things, as they all come together in a specific circumstance of life, produces an emotional response. Um, for example, if I know that I've made a promise to my kids that I'm going to go to the zoo, and then I am purposing to do that, and then it's raining, and I can't do that, what's a potential emotional response? 
Anger, okay, what's that? Okay, you can be upset, okay. What is lacking in my, if I have an uncontrollable anger or an overwhelming sorrow at a circumstance like that, what is lacking in my knowledge or, or um, acting on the truth? Okay, whether I'm in control or not, right? What else? The fact that God's in control of the weather, yeah. So if I get, um, if I don't make it to the thing that I promised my kids because I did something I wanted to do before we left, there is a right place for me to say this is my fault and I should have done this differently. But if it's something that is outside of my control and I recognize that it is outside of my control, then my emotional response will be not completely removed, but will be affected by that knowledge of the truth. And sometimes it comes down to whether we're actually believing that truth. Because I can know something like God makes it rain or not rain, but I don't really believe it or want to acknowledge it or want to submit to it sometimes because I want to feel like I have a right to be upset about it. Think about Jonah. Who makes plants grow? God does. Did Jonah want to believe that? No, Jonah didn't want to believe that. And my point is not that it's wrong always to feel certain ways about certain things. Um, there are things that are difficult. There are things that are unjust. There are things that are not the way they should be. And so it is right to sorrow or to have an, um, a righteous anger about injustice or all of those sorts of things. The difference is that it is not an uncontrolled or a, or, a, or a selfish or a sinful kind of response to those circumstances. Since emotions are connected with thinking, wanting, or doing, if any of those are off course, our emotions will be also. This is particularly true, for example, with worry. Um, and you can read through those passages later for sake of time. There's a couple of examples of how our emotions might work connected with our thinking, wanting, and doing, in addition to the one that I already gave. If I think that someone hates me, like that's the operating assumption in my mind, and then I see that person, I'm probably going to be more and more discouraged or angry at them every time that I see them. But what's the problem in that situation? Assuming that they don't actually hate me, what's the problem? Believing something that's not true. It's with my thinking, right? If I really want to take a nap when I get home from work, but my kids want to play a game, and let's say the toilet isn't working, and I get upset about that, where does the problem lie in between thinking, wanting, and doing? What I'm wanting, right? 
Some of that is not disconnected from thinking because if I don't have a category in my mind of I need to serve other people because this is the responsibility God has given me, I won't have a right response. And some of it has to do with what am I wanting and what do I need to do and I need to want what I need to do, sometimes even though that's hard to have a right response. All right. Um, what about when I say, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to come home and I'm going to watch something on TV. And then something comes up and I see a particular person as the reason that I can't do that. And I speak unkindly. Again, it's an intersection of what am I thinking about? What am I wanting? What am I doing? Versus what should I be thinking and wanting and doing? And sometimes we want to look at it as a line. I think the right thing, I want the right thing, I do the right thing, I'll feel the right way. But it's kind of more like a spiral in that they all are kind of inter interacting with, with each other. And so we have to uh, constantly be looking at those things. And not looking at them in a, an unprofitable way that is just... I'm sort of staring inward and, and thinking about everything I've said and everything I've done and all that, but just a quick glance to say, I did something wrong. What was the main reason I did something wrong? If you can't answer that question, then it's as simple as, I did something wrong, I can't do that, I need to start doing the right thing. But if it keeps happening and we're not completely blind to it, and sometimes you have to ask someone who's near you to, to help you with this, then it helps us to start to say, all right, here's the things that lead up to that sinful choice. They don't excuse it, they don't make it okay, but they do contribute to me being at this point. So where did I go wrong? And then that can be part of changing to follow God better. Since emotions can be influenced or even caused by weakness or other factors in our bodies, it is easy to excuse sinful actions tied to emotions. Um, I mean, to be frank, there's a perception in our culture that women have the right to be angry for a week or so each month. There's a perception that guys have the right to be angry if they've worked really hard, long hours at work. You know, it's just okay. The circumstances excuse a sinful response. The reality is, circumstances make a sinful response easier, but they don't excuse us having an ungodly response. The last point here, while well, it is difficult or perhaps impossible to directly manipulate our emotional responses, if you've ever been really worked up about something, and someone comes up and they're like, stop being angry. Stop being worried. It usually takes a little bit of time to move out of that state, right? It's not like we can just flip a switch. But we can bring these things into alignment with godly patterns through progressive growth. Understand how emotions work. Correct sinful habits of thinking, wanting, or doing. And address... Uh, as Ed Welch calls it, bodily contributors to various emotional responses. Um, there are cases, less frequent than I think people in society would recognize, in which 
something is wrong with our bodies and produces a, a particular set of responses. Um, like I said, I don't think it's as frequent as our society makes it out. Like, why can't a kid sit still in school? Well, because he has a particular diagnosis. Why can't this person um, make wise decisions? Well, they just have poor impulse control. You know, those sorts of These kinds of labels tend to be excuses for us not doing what God calls us to do. What is really easy for one person may be really hard for another person, but that doesn't mean stop trying. It means we recognize all of us have different struggles. We're patient with each other. We keep speaking truth to one another. We ask for God's help, and we seek to change. All right, a couple of case studies here. Someone want to read the first one for me? Francesca has a problem with her speech. One of her friends have described her to you as insistent and difficult to talk to. She is constantly arguing with her husband, Felipe, sometimes quite loudly in public. You become acquainted with her and then she visits a Bible study in the church. If you get to know her, she eventually confesses her frustration with her life. All right. What are some things that we should ask or find out? Okay, are you a Christian? Okay, good. Are you a believer? That's the first question we should always be asking in these kind of situations. What else? In light of some of the principles of communication that we've looked at, what are some of the things that she's not living up to what the Bible calls us to do? Okay. Doesn't maybe not building people up. What else? Okay, good. What's that? She's not being thankful. Okay. Um, and the thank, the lack of thankfulness could very well be leading to the arguing about things. Um, what about truth? Is truth lacking in some of the things that she's thinking or saying? What does she seem to be unaware of?
Yeah, when you blame everybody else for everything that's going on, there may very well be cases when 90% of the time it's someone else's fault, but generally there is at least some small way in which, in which you're doing wrong, and so if you're not even willing to acknowledge that, then that's going to be an obstacle to fixing the problem. Um, did the person have the right response or the wrong response to her Facebook post? Would there be a place for calling her on it? Okay, and that's good. I think it would be the form of a question. Hey, I saw you posted this. Does it bother you that we're talking about these things? And if she says no, then we'll be like, well, what were you talking about then? You know, and, and just we get in the mindset of that we need to turn the other cheek and forgive people, and that's true. But there's also cases sometimes where, I mean, it's the, it's the, um, it's the tension that we see in Proverbs where it says, don't answer a fool according to his folly so that you don't be like him. Answer a fool according to his folly so he's not wise in his own conceit. There's a time and a place where we shouldn't speak and a time and a place where we should speak and we need wisdom to know the difference about you know, those sorts of things. A lot of it has to do with our motivation. If it's, you made me upset because you said something bad about me, then going into it, we're probably not going to have a profitable discussion. If it's, this is part of the larger problem, let's talk about it. That could be helpful. Um, what do you think is the next step in trying to help her? Okay, have her write things down. Who do we not hear anything from in this account? We're not hearing anything from her husband. And, um, my point in saying that is not to say that we distrust what she is saying and trust what he is saying, but rather the principle of Proverbs where you have two people laying out their case. One person can represent it this way, one person can represent it this way. When you have both of them together, you tend to have a sense of what is actually going on, even if neither of them is giving you the whole picture. So. Um, I think we would want to look at the principles of communication. We'd potentially want to see if she and her husband could meet with a couple or, you know, the pastor, that kind of thing. And, um, you know, going back to the original thing, if she's talking about, if she's just showed up to a Bible study and she has, um, she's talking about some church person being on her case, she probably isn't seeing herself as part of the church. And we need to kind of work through why that might be. Is she an unbeliever? Does she need to be added to the church? Because until some of those things are in place, you're not going to make a whole lot of progress with these other things, too. All right. Someone read the next one? We'll wrap up with this.
So what's our first question? Is he a Christian? Assuming that he is, what are some of the other things we need to talk to him about? What are things that are lacking in his life? What are things that need to change in his life? What are some of the factors that are going on? Okay. Okay. Lack of spiritual disciplines. Probably a lack of discipline across the board, but spiritual disciplines being one of the important things. What else is he not making a lot of indication that he has? He doesn't have any connections with people. Um, theoretically, if someone is married, you have a connection with your spouse, with your kids, those sorts of things. But if you're not, then there needs to be a, some way of connecting with other people, and particularly in the connect, in context of the church. And... Um, Sometimes this, uh, sometimes the church is not doing a good job at reaching out to individual people, and sometimes individual people are not doing a good job at looking for opportunities to connect themselves. It's easy if you're living by yourself and you don't have a whole lot of responsibility outside of work to say, I'm going to do whatever I want and just sort of it's all about me, but it's not really a healthy way to live. Um... What else? What about his solution to his problems? Yeah. Right. And is he, here's, here's my big question. Is his life going to be better if he just feels better? No, because he's got issues of laziness, of loneliness, of all those sorts of things that need to be worked through. And if he just feels better, what is he going to not have the motivation to do? Not going to fix the problem if he just starts feeling better about it. What about um, if you were trying to encourage someone like that and they kept saying, hey, I forgot or I was just running behind. What would you, how should you respond to that? I mean, at some point, you've got to say, all right, so I'm going to call you an hour before we're supposed to meet to make sure that you're not asleep in your bed. I'm going to come by your house and pick you up, something like that. Don't let them have an excuse and, and just say, oh, you know, it's okay. it's okay. Because that sort of helps to continue this cycle of, of wrong behavior. Um, We have to have a, a proper balance of not judging people's motives when they are absent from church, but having the love and concern to follow up with them and say, hey, what's going on? Because it might be you had a traumatic medical event. It might be you are swamped with work this week. It might be you are sinning and you don't want to be at church because it makes you feel guilty. There's a whole lot of reasons why someone might be sort of over here and we need to be making an effort to find out what's going on so that we can encourage and help people. So, let's close with a word of prayer. 
Lord, I pray that you would help us to have wisdom in the way that we talk and to have wisdom in the way that we work through how we feel about things, that we would have responses that please and honor you, and that we would help others to do the same. In Christ's name, amen.